You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where even newer microphone technology can't save you from the fact that you're listening to my voice. Titanic episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle two Titanic Titans of Titanic Titans. Yeah, Cal's joining the Teen Titans. Actually, not the Teen Titans anymore. At this point, they were the New Titans. And basically, Speedy had become Arsenal. Kid Flash had left and been replaced by Part Allen Impulse. And Terra is back. I don't know why, but yes, Terra's there. Not the Terra, but a Terra. And Kyle's all into the team games. Especially because they have oh, a little extra bonus of having Wonder Girl. Although she's not Wonder Girl, she's done a droid dark stuff. I don't get it. Neither will you. But that's the fun of listening to these kind of podcasts. We don't know what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis. But that all occurs in the New Titans book. In the Green Lantern book, Cal actually gets to know Donna a little better, and he also meets some denizens of the alley beside his apartment. Hint, they're creepy, demonic alien things. Oh, and Felix Faust as well, so... Kyle helps release that character back into the DCU. Over in Guy Gardner, he releases some people too. Well, he releases one person in particular, a Hulk analog named Sledge, who decides it'd be a really good idea to smash. Smash the Washington Monument into the reflective pool. He gets a little help from Steel and Superman to the issue, and it's all pretty fun. But before we get to that fun, we're going ahead and get to some fun and listening to some promos. My favorite type of promos for my favorite type of podcast. And after that, we'll start with our coverage quickly of New Titans number 116. sense a disturbance in the force you always sense a disturbance in the force i don't like this Really pissed me off. Oh no! <laughs> it's a trap! Chewie, get us out of here! You can't run. Ow! Help me! Or two! This is where the fun begins. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. 
Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we're back. But before we get to the coverage of the Green Lantern issue, or the, even that, the New Titans issue, let's go ahead and start with some of the email that we've got from you wonderful, wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we start our coverage with a continuation of an email from Scott Davis, my favorite Canadian listener. Uh, Scott writes in to say, Hi, Sean. After my huge rant in the previous email on the Green Lantern issues, I thought I'd go to the Guy Gardner series also. I read the first eight issues and realized that these are the only issues Gerard Jones wrote. I assumed that he'd be on the entire series, and it's too bad he left, because I really enjoyed these issues. Number one, this was an excellent first issue. The only thing I don't like is Guy's cowboy boots. Well, I don't think you're alone in that feeling, so yeah, didn't really work for me either. Terrible. They have to go. The cliffhanger at the end with Guy losing the power of his ring was great, and overall it was a well-written, action-packed story. Issue 2. The fun continues with Buck 15, Doom and Boom. It's a nice fun contrast to the concurrent Green Lantern series. So, Kilowog just lets Guy keep Sinestro's ring even though it ran out of power? I thought Kilowog was smarter than that. Kilowog's fans shouldn't be too happy to see this. Also, the aliens want Guy to be the leader of an interplanetary muscle squad? This story just keeps getting better and better. Issue 3. Has this been... uh, has this been done before by having no words and just a full-out fighting for an entire issue? I find it strange that Guy would risk being out in space battling monsters when his ring just failed him in the previous issue. You can't breathe in space with no power, Guy. Um, in answer to your question about uh, issues with no words, I know they've done that before. They've had a lot of silent issues. I know there was a... Oh, in the 80s, I want to say there was a... John Byrne inked issue of Batman that only had one word in it, and I know they've done it before, but this is the first time they've done it with uh, Guy Gardner, obviously. Uh, issue 4, he says, you make a great point. The Gardeners of the universe is the most unscary name you could possibly think of for a security team. Also, I think it's about time Ice gave up on Gardner. What? No. No, Ice loves Guy. <laughs> can't have that. Especially after Guy makes comments about how he can't wait to get say this BJ's from the long line of girls standing outside the position of Guy Girls for the position of Guy Gardner's girlfriend. Seriously, he's joking about how the girls have to pass their oral exam to be his girlfriend? That should be the last time Ice ever talks to Guy. Well, unfortunately it isn't and Guy does get better. This is Guy in his jerk mode. Issue 5. The banter between Guy and Phil at the Philly Ranch about the mix-up between girls and horses was pure gold great stuff. And I'm glad to see Hooker South was able to transfer her skills quote unquote, and get work in Las Vegas. I really like how she's become Guy's sidekick in this issue though. Issue 6 The long-awaited rematch between Guy and Hal has arrived. It was nice to see Hal's ass get kicked for once. I agree too. It didn't last as long as the fight in Green Lantern 25 unfortunately. I did find it a bit strange that it's basically okay Guy has Sinestro's ring. Hal doesn't make a big deal out of it, and I really would have thought the whole Green Lantern Corps would be coming after Guy to try and get him back. Do they really trust Guy enough with Sinister's ring that they don't have to worry too much about it? Okay, I'm starting to wonder why Hooker Sally's with Guy now. She's always getting close to being shot or killed. Why is Guy bringing her around everywhere? Plus, it's also great to see that Goldface's funny team of Piston, DaCosta, and Repo are back. Yeah, those were pretty ridiculous characters, and... I think they only last in this book, but they were a fun foil for the Guy Gardner book. I enjoyed them a lot. Issue 7. Another fun issue with Goldface and his team, Misfits, wrecking havoc on Guy and Sally. The face plant that Guy gives Jocasta with his knee is absolutely brutal. Yeah, I mentioned that. Guy wasn't afraid to uh, hit a girl, especially if that girl was uh, going to try and hit him. So, uh, Guy may not be the most uh, sensitive person around. 
I think you guys kind of know that. Number 8. The long-awaited rematch between Guy and Lobo has arrived. I guess Gerard wanted to go out and strong, wanted to go out strong in his last Guy Carter issue with Lobo, and it was definitely a great back-and-forth war. I really thought Kai was going to come out on top, so I was surprised to see his, him get his ass kicked in the end. Strangely, he took the loss quite well and wanted to celebrate with a beer and a night out in the town with Hooker Sally afterwards. Well, who wouldn't? Sally was hot. Maybe the last panel is Gerard's personal way of saying, I need a beer after this run on Guy Gardner. Who knows what was going on behind the scenes at DZ at the time. The panel shows Guy looking directly at the reader, talking about going out and drinking, and he's going. he's got his arm around Sally, making it look like he's ready to take her out for a fun time. Thanks, Gerard. You deserve it. This was a fun eight issues. Talk to you later, Scott. Well, Scott, I appreciate you writing in. Some great points on the issues. I'm glad you're picking up the Guy Gardner stuff. It's really fun stuff, and I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Our next email comes from Tom Panneries, host of the Taking Flight podcast. It's a podcast dealing with Robin and many of his iterations. He's covered the uh, Dick Grayson Robin, the uh, Jason Todd Robin, and he's also covered the uh, Tim Drake one as well. It's a really fun show. Plus, Tom also runs a site called Pop Culture Affidavit, which I think you can find at popcultureaffidavit.blogspot.com. I need to look that up, but unfortunately, as I'm recording now, I'm not going to check that. But I'm pretty certain that one is. Just look for Pop Culture Affidavit on Google. You'll find it. But Tom writes in saying, Sean, I've been catching up on just one of the guys, and I'm about 10 episodes behind. I've been waiting until I'm completely caught up to write in. However, I heard you plug Taking Flight in episode 45 and just wanted to send you a quick email to say thanks. I didn't expect the compliment, and I'd definitely like to return it. I really enjoyed your podcast. You really capture my favorite era of Green Lantern. And though I've never been a huge Guy Gardner fan, you really made me appreciate the character more. Well, thanks, Tom. I'm glad that you're listening to the show. I've got a lot of emails from people saying that this era of Green Lantern is their favorite, especially the one that we're getting into now with uh, Kyle and everything. Uh, I'm also glad that you're taking a new look at Guy Gardner. These books, especially the Guy Gardner Warrior books that we're covering right now, being written by Bo Smith, are some of my favorite books of all time. Bo Smith gets the character of Guy Gardner, and he's done a great job so far. Even with the sort of editorial finagling that he's had to go through, the books have been really good. Uh, and I also have to say, Tom, I'm glad to hear that you're sort of expanding the idea of taking flight. Initially, Tom's idea was just to do it as sort of a miniseries, which was going to probably last 20 episodes or more. But now he's going to carry it out to cover pretty much all aspects of the uh, Robin universe. Uh, not only covering Dick Grayson and his uh, stint as Robin, but also working on Nightwing and covering uh, the Tim Drake Robin as well. Really fun stuff. and Definitely, if you are a fan of Batman, you need to know that Robin is an important part of his history, not just a sort of golly gee whiz character. He's a really cohesive part of the Batman universe, and Tom does a great show emphasizing that. In some ways, he's taking a character that's kind of looked on in a negative light, much like I am with Guy Garter, and promoting him in an awesome way. Tom has a great podcast. Definitely go check out Taking Flight. Then our next letter, and our final letter for the, uh, the show, because I've got a couple extra, but I will uh, save those for next time. But this one is from Luke, Jack, and Eddie, and it's titled, I Can't Drive, Episode 55. See what he did there? Nice Sam Hager reference. I like Sam Hager. Luke writes in, Sean, Zero Hour was the first major DC crossover I ever read. And while it made absolutely no sense whatsoever, at the time I loved it just because it was big and an epic DC story, and I was a new DC reader. Yeah, I didn't know who everyone was or why what was happening was important, but I swallowed the hook on the concept and really bought into it. In the intervening years, I became a much bigger DC fan, to the point where I read a lot more DC than Marvel at this point. A few years ago, I reread Zero Hour. I figured that being a much more educated DC fan, I'd quote-unquote get it more now, right? Yeah, not so much. It still made absolutely no sense. Fun, but pretty nonsensical. Yeah, that's kind of what I came across when I did a reread of Zero Hour. I had the uh, trade paperback of it, and sadly, yeah, it is kind of difficult to get into. It's an interesting idea with the whole remaking the universe, but the whole thing with Hal Jordan being the ultimate baddie in it just doesn't work, and 
well, it works, but it's just not something I wanted to see. Plus, you get Hank Hall, who was Monarch, who decided to become Extant. Horrible name. Try and be the baddie for, like, the first three issues of it. it. I think we've said before with Thomas DJ on the show that it probably did more harm than it fixed. So, there you go. Luke continues... I also dug the whiteouts, which ended some of the issues right before Zero Hour. Again, I was a newish DC reader, and this gimmick was awesome to me. The problem with the women in refrigerators phenomenon is that while the death of Alex did lead to huge changes and, more importantly, growth in Kyle Rayner as a character, that itself is the argument which the women in refrigerator backers point to as the problem. The killing and maiming of the women is used specifically as a device to grow the male character for good or ill. So on one side, you have the fans of the character saying she had to die so that Kyle could enter the next phase of his heroic journey. And on the other side, you have the women refrigerator folks saying Kyle or Alex became a plot device in service of a male character. And they're both correct, hence why this argument will never end. Luke, I think you perfectly summed up the idea of women in refrigerators. It is both. It's a plot device to move the character on, and it's also victimization of female characters. So very true. Of course, he's, uh, Luke continues and says, it's helpful to remember that these people are, in fact, not real. I think that's one of the things that we as comic book fans tend to ignore quite often. It's rare to see a guy doing the butts and boobs pose, but you do get to see it every now and then. And I guess he's talking about the uh, pose of Hal in the issue of Guy Gardner, where he's got that sort of turn where he's showing both his chest and his butt at the same time. Uh, I don't mind it on the women, but I don't want to see it on shirtless Al. But you do see it every now and then. As a guy who runs a Hawkman blog, I know all about beefcake and comics. So I, I expect you would. Hawkman likes to run around without his shirt on. One of the top linkers to my blog is the Shirtless Superhero blog, which features images of, you guessed it, superheroes with no shirts on. So Hawkman gets a lot of love there, and it's at the uh, website http colon backslash backslash shirtless dash superheroes dot blogspot dot com over in guy gardner the temporal wonkiness sounds like tons of fun right up until the end when guy witnesses co city being destroyed but that's what happens when you mess with the time stream everyone knows that if the butterfly effect talked us anything it's that ashton kutcher is a terrible actor Mm mm-hmm i think the butterfly effect taught that to us pretty succinctly or succinctly if i could say the word it also taught us that you can't mess with the time stream because things like that simply don't work but hey all of the genre character cameos are nice by the way nighthawk and cinnamon were in the post-crisis tcu previous reincarnations of carter and shira hall hawkman and hawk girl in volume four of hawkman there was a story with nighthawk and cinnamon which tied the gentleman jim craddock aka the gentleman ghost into their history and everyone loves the Gentleman Ghost. That's really cool, Luke. I had no idea that Nighthawk and Cinnamon were uh, the reincarnated versions of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. That's really good. I emailed Luke to ask him if that was current in the new DC Universe, because right now I'm reading uh, All-Star Western, and Hawk, or Nighthawk and Cinnamon are a part of that book, and I don't know if their continuity has stayed the same. Being that it's the new 52, I'm probably going to say it didn't. Luke continues saying, Mike Parabek was amazing. He did a feature on the 1990s Carter Hall version Hawkman in the animated style Batman and Superman magazine that was absolutely amazing, and he has a link to it there. Uh, he also says, I remember that ad by Parabek with Batman and Superman, and you are absolutely correct. This predated Superman the animated series, hence the long hair for the Man of Steel. In the prehistoric period, Better a stampede of Brachiosauruses than a stampede of Rocky D dinosaur D-bag extraordinaire, right? But I'm dumped. Yes, I'm glad that Guy didn't have to run through a herd of Rocky D dinosaur extraordinaire. Would have been nice if he, you know, would have morphed his hand to a gun and took a couple of them out, though, but just me. The only good bit in Blank Man, going back to Luke's email, was where Jason Alexander, playing the editor of a tabloid, picked his headline by throwing darts at a dartboard. Literally one 10-second gag in an entire movie. Ugh. I will take your word for the fact that Blank Man was not a good movie, Luke. I'm not going to find it out myself. 
The Messner Loeb's era of Hawkman, Luke continues, was what started up after Ostrander finished writing all of his Hawkworld and started Volume 3. I've not actually read this part of the series yet, but if I'm remembering correctly, this is where Hawkman becomes the merged character, combining Carter Hall, Katar Hall, and the Hawk God. This would lead to such developments as wings which sprouted out of his back, going insane, and eventually dying. Yeah, it's Hawkman. It's complicated. Again, Luke, you are the expert on Hawkman. I take your word for it. Luke finishes up saying, Looking forward to your old-school zero-month coverage, dude. Luke. Luke, thank you very much for writing in. If you guys didn't know, Luke hosts a number of podcasts, a lot of them over at the Two True Freaks website. Definitely go check them out. He hosts Earth Destruction Directive, which is a Daikaiju podcast, which deals with such characters as Godzilla, Gamera, King Ghidorah, Rodan, all the big Chinese Jap... uh, Not Chinese. All the big Japanese giant monsters that you loved as a kid. Fun stuff. He also covers stuff like Ultraman, which Luke was really kind enough to uh, send me a DVD collection of the uh, first season of Ultraman that I really need to get around to watching. It looks like it's going to be some good stuff. He also co-hosts, along with me, the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, where we're getting ready to cover some more Italian horror, getting into the Dario Gento thing. And we're also probably going to be doing a little bit of spinoff from the Italian stuff and covering the Friday the 13th movies, starting with the very first one, Friday the 13th. So that looks to be a lot of fun as well. Luke also has a couple of blogs, Elge Cone's Comic Bunker and Being Carter Hall, which, as you kind of mentioned, or as he mentioned in the email, is a Hawkman blog. So thank you, Luke, for writing in, and thank you, everyone, for writing in. As always, I love getting email from listeners, and I love reading on the air. You guys make this show even more fun than it actually is. So thanks, everyone. But with email for the week out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our coverage of the books, this time starting out with New Titans number 116, which was covered in December 1994 with a release date of October 18, 1994. The cover price was $1.95 US, two seventy-five Canada, and a pound twenty-five UK. The title was Simon Says, with a P in front of the says, Die. The plot, the plot was by Marv Wolfman. The script was by Marv Wolfman and Frank Pitterese. Penciler was J.B. Jones. Inkers were Keith Champagne and Rich Rankin. Colors was Chai. Letterer was Albert Guzman. Assistant editor was Kerry Kowalski. Production was Steve Mannion. And editor was Pat Gary. In space, Teen Titan Mirage is plumbing to Earth in a space capsule as she tries to make sense of what happened with the whole Zero Hour event which makes her very much like this reader. As she begins to burn up upon re-entry, a dark star appears near the craft. Back on Earth, the Titans, Impulse, Arsenal, Terra, and Damage are being held captive in a gooey snot bubble by whacked-out Changeling. The group manages to break free and engage the former Titan. They are soon outclassed by Car, but Green Lantern pops in and lays an Optimus Prime-level smackdown on the shapeshifter, which leads us to the scene of the last Green Lantern issue. There's a subplot with a couple members of the Fearsome Five getting murdered, and then it's back to the Fightenstein with Green Lantern and the Titans. The Simon-possessed Kyle has the team on the ropes until Impulse speed punches the crap out of him, knocking him out. The Titans regroup and try to figure out what's up with the Lantern when he awakens and puts them all in a Dr. Evil-style death trap. Mirage and Dark Star Donna Troy show up and smack Kyle around, until Kyle subdues Donna by spraying her with a bunch of sticky goo spurting out of his... The Simon-possessed Kyle prepares to jam his rod into the goo-covered Donna. Seriously, it's, it's on the panel. Until Kyle resists and blasts Simon out of his body, setting all the trapped and fluid-covered titans free. Too bad Simon, who's now there in flesh, didn't say that they would win. And uh, don't have many notes on this. This is a much better artwork and story than the last issue that Kyle guessed are in. That Rebels issue is just uh, kind of poor. Of course, having Marv Wolfman write the story couldn't hurt in that arena. Plus, Kyle looks a bit more on model here. You know, he actually looks like he does in the book, even though he's not being drawn by Daryl Banks. So the artwork by uh, Jones and Keith Champagne and Rich Rankin actually worked for Kyle here. Plus, there's a lot of slump subplots in the book that really have nothing to do with Kyle that I just kind of bruised over. But I'm certain if you're reading the Titans book, they're very important to 
especially with the one about Gar acting all crazy. I have no idea what happened to Changeling, and that's probably all covered with Titan. And yes, the image on page 20 of Guile shooting, quote-unquote, gummy resin all over Donna and frosting her with it is perhaps the most suggestive image I've seen in comics recently. And I've read some issues of Strange Tales with Paste Pot Pete in it, so there you go. But that about does it for the Teen Titans issue, or the New Titans issue, I guess. Let's go ahead and get to what we came here for, Green Lantern number 58. Maybe I shouldn't use the word came after I just described that issue. Yuck. Green Lantern number 58 was cover dated January 1995, with a release date of November 22nd, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was Conjuring. The script was by Ron Mars, pencilers were Cully Hamner and Fred Haynes, inker was Romeo Tangal, colorist was Steve Matson. letterer was Albert Guzman, associate editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. In the alley near Kyle Rayner's apartment, the crazy homeless man from last issue lies against the building's wall, when suddenly a demonic creature pulls its way through said wall. Begging for the beast to leave him alone, the horror passes the homeless man, probably because he just wet himself in fear, and instead attacks a man who is out walking his dog, dragging his victim into the alleyway. Cut to an impatient cow raider, who's managed to con former Wonder Girl and current Dark Star Donna Troy into coming into his apartment to help him unpack. Since his run with run-in with Simon and joining the Titans, Kyle hasn't had much time to unpack, and he hopes Donna can help him out moving in. The two arrive at the apartment, and Donna changes into her civilian clothes, much to Kyle's surprise, since he thought that heroes kept their secret identities, you know, secret. Especially when the last female that knew he was Green Lantern ended up dead. Donna says that she feels sorry for his loss, but the Titans were always a family, and she is pretty sure that she can protect herself if trouble comes around. Feeling a bit more composed, Kyle loses the costume and then reveals himself to Donna, and the two get to unpacking boxes. Some awkward discoveries of Kyle's underpants and CD collection adds a bit of romantic tension to the job, which Kyle botches by saying that he thought Donna was cute when she was Wonder Girl. The two exchange origin stories with Kyle talking about his life with his divorced mom and Donna telling about her husband and son. Eventually, the two get around unpacking and putting most of Kyle's putting together most of Kyle's apartment, and around midnight, Donna calls in a night and heads home. Kyle lends her his jacket as he walks her down to the street, where Kyle is met by his landlord, Radu. The Bavarian barista makes small talk with Kyle, until the two are set upon by the demon from the beginning of the book. The horror drags Radu into the alley, and Kyle rings up and pursues. Upon entering the alley, Kyle witnesses the homeless man surrounded by demons, and the original demon dragging Radu into some sort of portal. Kyle lassoes his leg with a ring construct shackle and is dragged in the portal where he witnesses a hellish toothy maw waiting to devour both him and Radu. Kyle ring constructs up a flail, bashes the abduction, abducting abomination, and flies himself and his landlord back into the alley. Kyle is again attacked by the creatures as he notices that the crazy homeless guy has been completely ignored. Thinking he might be able to help, Kyle uses the ring to jog the man's memory which causes him to transform into some kind of Egyptian mystic who easily banishes the demons to whence they came. The strange wizard thanks Kyle for helping him regain his memories, as for some time he had been lost. Kyle is leery about the situation, but the wizard allays his fears as he proclaims that Green Lantern will be seeing plenty of Felix Faust. We're getting to the part in the uh, Green Lantern story where we get the whole deal that Kyle is the luckiest guy in the DC universe. As this is the beginning of the sort of string of relationships that I kind of implied in the uh, beginning of the show. Here you see him getting with some of the hottest babes in Herodom. First of all, we of course had Alex, the love of his life. Then we got Adara. Now we're starting to get Donna Troy. And man, oh man, with the artwork here, it's very anime-styled, but it's not that sort of very angular Japanese anime, but it takes a lot of elements from that, especially the look of Donna. And my, oh my, is she cute in this issue. Even more so than when uh, Daryl Banks and Romeo Tangal are drawing her. And that's saying something, because 
they do a good job with her. But, uh, yeah, I guess I can understand why people might be a little upset with Kyle, the new kid on the block, just basically basking in hot superhero tale. It's disappointing. But I guess it's wish fulfillment for the reader, so that's kind of fun. Starting with notes, we'll go ahead and go with the cover. It's a very blue cover, which was odd for the books at the time. Usually we'd have sort of bright pink or red or even yellow covers, and this sort of dark blue cover, it's interesting. It's a nice change of pace, but it kind of uh, mutes the sort of green coloring of Kyle's uh, uniform. It doesn't pop out as much as it does. Plus, the demons on here are kind of generic looking. I mean, they could be either demons or they could be villains from a Martian Manhunter book. Uh, they could also be rejects from the Bloodline story. But weren't all the people from the Bloodline story rejects? Come on. Let's be honest. Well, except for Hitman. I'll give you that. Page one. I find it really amusing that uh, something that looks like it could have been fueled by a bad acid trip tends to pop out of a Just Say No poster that's been hanging on the wall of this alley. Jeez, weren't the Reagans already in office in 94? I mean, this was the era of Bill Clinton. The whole Just Say No thing was probably a part of the past. Obviously, New York doesn't clean up its alleyways very much. Page 3. Initially, I wondered why the demons spared the homeless guy and then went and attacked the guy who was walking his dog really late at night. It didn't make any sense to me. I kind of figured that it was probably the smell of booze, urine, and body order that just turned him off so much. Or it could have been that he was actually Felix Faust. You never know. Either one works. Plus, I like on this page that the uh, store names are Tangals, and it looks like Wong's as well, which is another callback to the character of Wong from the Doctor Strange stories, who was, I guess, Doctor Strange's sort of Asian manservant, or his kind of sidekick, I guess. So, nice sort of callback there. Something they made in uh, the previous issue with uh, supposedly Wong helping Kyle to the apartment. Page 5, panel 1, as we see Kyle's apartment, he's got a few things set out. He's got a coffee table and his sketchboard, but all the rest of his stuff are in uh, boxes. And a lot of them on the side say books. So either Kyle is an avid reader, or he just is a hideous collector like a lot of us and has a lot of books. So... You make the decision there. Then on page 6, panel 1, here's an example of the artwork by Cully Hamner in the way he draws Donna Troy. She's in her little uh, long sleeve black shirt with her very baggy pants that are rolled up and cuffed around the legs. They're kind of low, low rider, and they sort of hit around the hips, but it's in no way revealing. It's just very attractive, and it does have that sort of, like I said, anime look, but it's not in the sort of ridiculous Sailor Moon or uh, I don't know what other types of anime. I'm not a big anime watcher. That's my daughter. But it has that sort of way. And I think the big thing is the face and the eyes. The face is really has some nice sharp angles and the eyes are very big. They're not anime eyes, but they are a lot bigger than what you see on regular figures. It's a nice artistic style and it really, really makes Donna look very young and very cute. Page 8, I like how the awkward sort of budding romance begins with Donna discovering Kyle's boxers and his CDs. And then Donna mentions that she's never heard of Nine Inch Nails or Green Day. Now, at the time in the 1990s, early 1990s, you could probably say someone might not know who these people were. But nowadays, when Nine Inch Nails has basically had the lead singer of the band win an Oscar for Best Music in a Film with a... I think he won it for the the social network. That's what it was. And Green Day has basically won a ton of Grammys, especially for their album American Idiot, which, in fact, was turned into a Broadway play. So these two unknowns in the 90s have basically become mainstream popular today. Odd, isn't it? Page 9. I really like Kyle's awkward fawning over Donna. I mean, it's really sweet, and for the most part, Donna is sort of egging him on. They're both flirting with each other, and, you know, Kyle could be Mr. Horny like uh, Hal Jordan was, but he's decided not to be, and that's really great. It's definitely nice to have a Green Lantern character who is attractive to the women like Hal Jordan is, but isn't so dismissive of him and 
isn't like what Michael Bradley says, have two modes, great big jerk or horniest guy in the world. So I really like the character of Kyle that he is affectionate or he is taking in Donna's affection, but he's still trying to be chivalrous about it. He's not just going, yeah, let's hit the sack, baby. Like Hal probably would. Page 10, panel 4, here's another great example of Hamner's artwork, but this time he's drawing Kyle, and his facial expression really conveys what Kyle is feeling. He's just told uh, Donna about the loss of his girlfriend, and he's got this look of his on his face of kind of sad but resolved. He's mournful of the fact that he lost his girlfriend, but he knows that he has to move on. It's it's really good that they're able to get this kind of expression, and uh, it's a credit to Hamner as an artist. I'm really like him, and I, I wonder if he does any more uh, in the run. I'll have to find out. Page 11, panel 4, as Donna's leaving the apartment, she changed out of her Dark Star costume, which I think has uh, shield generators and maser blasters on it, and he's just going to leave that in Kyle's bathroom where she changed. You know, I think think uh, that may be a bit of marking her territory or it may just be a sort of uh, oversight on her part because I would think that'd be an important thing that you might want to have around in case oh you need to be called into action by the dark stars who knows page 12 panel 1 again Kyle being very gentlemanly he offers Donna his coat and also offers to walk her down to the street even though he doesn't walk her home she said she'd walk home on her own take the uh, subway so Kyle, being very chivalrous, I'm liking that. Same page in panel two, we get Radio approaching Kyle and saying, hey, is that your girlfriend? He's kind of like that doting grandfather you'd have. It's like, oh, is that your girlfriend? Or are you two going out? Does she really like you? When am I going to have a grandchild? I want to have a grandchild. You need to deliver one to me. At least that's how my parents were. Page 13, again, I hearken to the fact that Hamner must be taking a lot of his look from anime styling because you've got the stereotypical Kyle flying at the reader and the background is all just these uh, speed lines going by on a a green and black background. So it's very much like what you see in Pokemon or in, um, I guess in Pokemon where they're fighting and someone bashes someone or knocks someone out and the background is all that, the one color with the sort of sunburst and the speed lines coming from it. Very dynamic look here. I liken, liken Hamner's art. Page 15, the dimension that the demons are coming from is uber creepy. Uh, it's basically just a bunch of portals that are holes with giant yellow gnashing teeth and saliva in them. Very, very hellish and very, very disturbing. It's, it's a really good image, and no one wants to be here at all. Page 16, panel 2. I like it as Kyle is fighting the demon with his little flail that he almost lets out that he's knowledgeable of who Radu is. He says, let's go, gr- uh, I mean, guy that I've never met before. Maybe Radu might not know that Kyle is Green Lantern, but he's got to try and put two and two together and think, hey, this guy who saved me looks a lot like the guy I was just talking to minutes ago. Then on page 17, panel 1, it's kind of neat because it looks like Kyle rings up a version of the Fantastic Car, the old sort of bathtub-looking Fantastic Car, to uh, get Radu and himself out of the uh, hellish portal. So that's kind of neat there. Page 19, panel 3. I haven't seen this in a long time, and it was an object of contention when I talked about it in the early issues, but I never felt that it was a good idea for the Green Lanterns to take the most powerful weapon of the universe and beam it at another person's head to try and get information out of them. It always seemed like that could backfire very, very much. And I guess kind of in this case it does because, oops, uh, well, it turned out to be Felix Faust, which we find out on page 22, and that can't be good at all. But that covers my uh, notes for this issue. Let's go ahead and take a break. I'm going to go get a drink, and when I come back, I will start on my coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number 27. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. 
All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hey, you. Yes, you, hearing this message. Do you like podcasts? Well, evidently you do, because you're listening to one right now. Do you like giant monsters? Of course you do. Who doesn't like giant monsters? Well, then have I got the show for you. Earth's Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Gappa, Yangari, and Giawa. We cover everything from movies to comic books to video games, and we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at Two True Freaks. .com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libson.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. In a world where planets die. I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never-ending battle. But millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. One man become a hero. Every world needs its heroes, Clark. They inspire us to be better than we are. And they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner. One man will rise to the challenge. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! One man will wear spandex. Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? (laughs) Well, they don't call them tights for nothing. (laughs) Presenting The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. So let's go ahead and take a look this time out at Guy Gardner Warrior number 27. No preamble, just going right to it. Guy Warrior number 27 was cover dated January 1995 with a release date on December 6, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was Capital Punishment Act 1, Wake Up Call. Writer was Bo Smith, penciler was Mitch Bird, inker Dan Davis, colorist Stu Shapitz, letterer Albert Guzman, and editor Eddie Braganza. Taking down Bane, extant in Mongol, is easy when you're a guy freaking gardener, the last Voldarian. Even Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman marvel at the awesomeness before them with Diana lovingly calling his name. Sadly, this is all a daydream which Guy is woken from by the praise of President Bill Clinton. The president honors both Guy and Nick Santos, extreme cop, for saving him in the last issue. Guy humbly accepts the accolades as Clark Kent and John Henry Irons look on approvingly from the crowd. Sometime later, Guy is walking by the Lincoln Memorial, pondering all the changes in his life, when who should show up to congratulate him but... Superman. The Man of Steel praises Guy and the rescue, and Guy confesses to Superman that ever since the Nava Jungle Trek, 
he's found out that he's actually the last of an alien race. Surprised that he and Guy have something in common, Superman tells Guy that he understands how he's feeling, and how he must accept the responsibility of being in such a small fraternity. Guy thanks the last son of Krypton, and tells him to stay out of trouble as he watches him fly over. Thinking to himself that he should have asked for Superman's help in trying to find his lost brother, Guy walks along the Washington Mall, while inside the Washington Monument, an odd stasis chamber activates. As the chamber bursts open, we cut to Guy being approached by Steve, who also congratulates Guy on his positive PR. The two shake hands, with Guy saying he's not ready to be the poster boy for the goody-goody brigade just yet. Meanwhile, the chamber is fully open, revealing the roided-up freak who goes by the name Sledge. Yeah. Sledge tries to smash the entire memorial and steal engages it, blasting rivets into his back, but to no avail. Sledge pummels Steel as Guy's Voldarian powers kick in, and the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Cleveland, 2011, all rights observed, begins. All the while this is going on, the Quorum is monitoring the fight, as Sledge happens to be one of their early military prototypes. We're then treated to a Thomas T.J. style. which shows the Quorum developing this ultimate weapon, only to realize that they did their job too well, and Sledge doesn't stop killing with just the enemy. The government wanted Sledge eliminated, but the Quorum had spent too much money on the project, and they put him in cryostasis. And hid him inside the Washington Monument. Maybe not the best of ideas. Cut back to Guy and Steel, who are wondering where the muscle mutant is, until Sledge jumps onto Guy, pounding his face into the snowy ground and then throwing him through the monument. Sledge then grabs Steel and prepares to pop his head off, when the hero blasts the green Goliath in the face with his non-mummy rocket boots. This knocks Sledge back long enough for Steel to catch his breath, but not long enough to avoid getting smashed by Sledge into a snow angel. But before the hulking menace can finish Steel off, he catches a chunk of the monument thrown by Guy to the face. Warrior comes out and tosses Sledge across the reflecting pool then brings the entire Washington Monument down on the baddie. Crisis averted, the two heroes trade jibes as the Quorum Evac team comes to take Sledge away. Meanwhile, in a galaxy far, far away, Master Bronk, the leader of the Tormox, receives word that a Voldarian presence has been discovered. Medicinely, the Tyrant proclaims, the time has come. Back on Earth, Guy is driving to his mother's house for a surprise Christmas meeting. Hoping she likes the present he got for her, Guy ponders on how he'll approach the subject of May still being alive. But that conversation will never happen, as upon entering the house, Guy sees Major Force sitting in the gardener kitchen, joking about the size of his parents' refrigerator. Zombie Jesus, I'd forgotten how this issue ended. And by heavens, wasn't it a shocker? I mean, the similarity between what happened to Kai and Kyle is pretty obvious. But this death could be far more easily fall into the whole women in fridges trope that Gail Simone wrote about. This death is simply for shock value, and it doesn't really motivate the character like it did in the Green Lantern book. Yes, I'm certain it's going to get Guy really PO'd, but... It doesn't really motivate him to progress that much as a character. In fact, we've seen progression of the character throughout the entire run of Bo Smith's writing of the book. So this is just sort of a one-off stop to kind of shock the readers. But as well as the shock ending, the story as a whole, like I said, really develops Guy as more of a hero than a jerk. In fact, his interaction with Superman and Steel is both really heartfelt and in the case of Superman, kind of brotherly. Bo Smith is really getting the character right in my mind. If you're a fan of Guy Gardner, you have to be a fan of this era of the book. But let's start out with my coverage. Uh, Initially, the cover, very yellow cover, with uh, the Incredible Hulk on it. Oh, no, wait, that's Sledge. But they certainly are aping the Incredible Hulk. I mean, he's just 
a giant bruiser. Of course, he's got the stereotypical 90s-style costume with the weird discs on his knuckles and, of course, the strange face mask uh, It's with the head cut out to make him look like, I guess, what, like the grifter. I guess that'd be the character today. and Maybe Gambit of the uh, time. It's a, it's a look. Page one, uh, this is a great splash page with Guy easily taking out all the villains that the heroes uh, couldn't take out, and the heroes openly praising him. It's it's really hilarious. We've got uh, Superman saying, that guy, what a hero, and Batman thinking to himself, what a great mind, if only I were as smart as Guy, and Wonder Woman in this sort of, uh, well, this sort of fawning pose with her hands held up together, or, you know, underneath her chin and just her head sort of tilted to the side going, Ooh, Guy, you're such a real man. Guy, Guy. And it's this. It's at this point that you realize that Guy is having his own little personal daydream fantasy. But uh, the characters are all drawn well. Like I said, uh, uh, Mitch Bird has really gotten the characters down, especially Wonder Woman. She looks very physically fit and... She doesn't look as big as Superman or Batman, uh, which is, I guess, a trope that's sort of fallen into modern comics, where Wonder Woman is actually larger than Superman. Uh, we saw that in the Justice League New Frontier book, so it's kind of interesting here that she's more petite and demure, but uh, they all really look on model and look really good. Page 2, panel 3, we get another shot of Bill Clinton here, and he's giving his sort of, well, almost Nixon-like victory stance, where he's got his hands raised up and his fingers in the victory pose, and he looks a lot better here than in the last issue when J.H. Williams III did him. However, I don't know why he's still wearing that awful green suit and tie. I don't recall Clinton ever wearing anything this awful, and that's saying something since he used to be a former governor of Arkansas. Page 3, panel 4, I don't think there's anything much more patriotic than an image of Superman standing out in front of the Lincoln Memorial. It's awesome. And Bird does a great job at rendering Superman here. Now, like most Bird's characters, he's a bit more beefy than you'd probably see him in the Superman books, but it works here, and the the inking and the coloring here are great. Uh, you can really see Superman's definition, and... It's just a really good look, especially he's got the longer hair. Um, I'm really impressed with the way Bird is drawing the uh, other characters in the DC universe here. A lot of times you'll get cameos and the characters won't look on model. This looks on model enough, but it also fits into the whole aesthetic of the uh, Mitch Bird, Dan Davis art style that we've got at Guy Gardner Warrior. Page 4, Guy finally admits to Superman that he's the last of an alien race, and now the two kind of have a kinship, and Smith writes it here in such a manner that it isn't cloying or condescending, and despite how Guy and Superman were before, especially in the Justice League America issues, the two actually have a really nice moment of bonding here, with Superman looking actually shocked when Guy says that he's the last of an alien race. And of course, rather than dealing on the issues of how Guy and him didn't get along, Superman bonds with him. Superman says, look, you're the last of your kind, I'm the last of my kind. We've got something in common now. Superman's awesome, he doesn't hold a grudge against Guy, and Guy is growing as a character in the fact that he takes Superman's praise and uh, he runs with it. So, again, Bo Smith doing an excellent job in developing the character of Guy Gardner. Page 6, panel 4. I found this amusing. <clears throat> this is the point where Guy and Steel meet and they shake hands, and there's the subtle sound effect of crunch as the two guys are shaking hands, which is basically one of these things where you get two macho guys who are trying to prove how macho they are when they shake hands. They both try to crush each other's hand, and I, I think that's a subtle little character moment in there that you probably wouldn't find in other books, but it it just jumped out to me, and it, it screams... It screams that these two guys are really actually good friends, and they're trying to one-up each other, which is just fun. Page 7, we get our first full image of uh, Sledge, and he's doing his hand-over-fist face from Heavy Metal again. And 
I'm certain if you replace the word balloon here with stern instead of sledge, uh, you probably wouldn't be able to make a distinction between the two characters. Page 10, we've got some really great artwork here. The uh, inset panel of Guy, who's morphed his hand and kind of giant uh, flails or kind of maces, where he has these huge spiked balls where his hands used to be, is really kind of cool. Then in the same pa- on the same page in panel 5, where a guy was punched in the face by Sledge, you see that his face has absorbed the impact of it by just sort of morphing around it, and you see his face has the imprint of the fist in it. So it's a nice example of showing what uh, Guy's powers can actually do to defend him, as well as be offensive as well. Page 11, I've commented on this before. Bo Smith writes great quippage, and there's some really good back and forth between Guy and Steel here. Steel says, I've got just the thing for that. I'll make him forget about all that stomach pain. And Guy says, oh, I see you got tired of resting back there. Steel replies, what do you mean resting? I was just sandbagging this moron. Guy replies, a simple thank you will suffice for saving your rusty butt, if you don't mind. So it's good that they're developing, or that Bo Smith is developing his characters to be sort of friends in the very macho way that uh, male friends who were essentially beefed-up superheroes would be. Page 14, looking at this page, which is an image of Sledge slamming Guy's face into the ground, I really wish that Mitch Bird had done some work on The Incredible Hulk, but because his figures here definitely emulate the style that you would get in The Incredible Hulk, and Sledge essentially is just uh, a Caucasian analog of the Hulk. Pages or page fifteen panels uh, six and seven, we get uh, Steel being picked up by his skull by Sledge, and so to get out of it, he uh, gives this little line. It's like, "Hey, look at that! You've got something big and nasty between your teeth." And he raises his foot up to his mouth, and the next line is, "My foot." <laughs> and then, of course, the next panel and the panel on the next page are now rinse and spit <laughs> as he fires the boot in his face awesome just ridiculous over-the-top action and loving it loving it loving it and again now on page 17 we got guy doing some great quippage here saying i'm the warrior damn it file that away on your rolodex of pain now uh i guess now you'd have to sort of file it away in your contacts list on your iphone or your android phone of pain but it doesn't quite work as well now does it rolodexes probably work better for this era page 18 you know i know guy was just nominated by the president or was just honored by the president as a hero but i don't care how much of a hero you are if you topple the washington monument you just can't walk away from it without getting into a little bit of trouble max lord's probably going to hear about this page 19 again some excellent quippage by bo smith here guy says to steel I guess this is the part where you thank me for pu- you thank me profusely for saving your steel butt. And then the next panel, Steel says, "Excuse me, uh, didn't I hear you cry for your mommy at one point?" Guy smiling says, "No way." The embarrassment of getting smacked around by that giant Fred Flintstone must have affected your hearing, bud. Of course, in the uh, final panel of the page, uh, Guy says to Steel, "This, hey, Steel, seriously, thanks for the help." And says, "Steel." flies off he says anytime partner anytime so bo smith is getting that sort of manly bro dude sort of thing going on between the characters and it's not over the top it's all very genuine and it's all very fun and it's all very heartfelt as well it's guy growing as a character from the obnoxious person he was but still retaining some of that obnoxiousness but channeling it into a more palatable uh, character page 20 with the alien race out there we get all subplots accounted for and then of course on page 22 we get oh snap someone is in guy's mom's fridge and major force is sitting there grinning this is not boding well but that does it for the issue gonna go ahead and turn around and see what kind of ads they've decided to plop down for a measly amount of change in this book 
The front end side cover is an ad for the port of the video game Mortal Kombat 2, which has uh, new characters and uh, new uh, killing moves. In fact, this time I think is the first time they introduce the friendship kill, which is very different from the uh, regular violent kill, where uh, characters do something wonky and dance around and have little hearts and stuff. It's Mortal Kombat. It's ultimately violent and kind of fun, I guess. A few pages in, we get the Jean-Claude Van Damme and Raul Julia Opus Street Fighter. And by Opus, I mean not in any way, shape, or form, and sadly, I think this was Raul Julia's last movie. He may have done something for HBO, but this, I think, was his last big release movie before he passed on. Sadly, you don't want Street Fighter to be the last movie you're remembered for. Next page, next page is an ad for uh, Red Zone, which is a Sega Genesis game, which looks like it might be kind of a mech warrior type game. It's you uh, walking around in a radioactive desert killing things. Don't really remember this game. I don't think I ever rented it from uh, my local Blockbuster or wherever, so it could be good. Chances are average. A few more pages in, we get uh, an ad for RPGs uh, with the... Uh, Megaverse of Rifts, and it includes the uh, games Rifts, Heroes Unlimited, and Robotech. These were uh, non-TSR type games. In fact, who did they come out with? I guess Megaverse is the uh, company that came out with them. So it's a sort of spin on the whole Dungeons & Dragons, Star Frontiers type games, except done by a different company. Then in the middle of the book, we get an advertisement for Tinstar, which is a a Super Nintendo platformer that I'm afraid never really went anywhere. Uh, I guess you play a character who's a sort of robotic gunman in this old west town. It's supposed to be a sort of a comedic uh, game, but unfortunately I didn't have the Super Nintendo, and since this was exclusive, I don't have any memories of it. Then a few more pages in, we get the on or the beginning of the burgeoning DC Online set. Uh, when the internet was young... People used to access it through modems that went by at, oh, maybe 28k baud speed if you were lucky, 56k if you had a bunch of money, and I guess DC had a uh, page on the AOL site where you could get 10 free hours if you signed up there. Yes, does everyone remember the internet when you had to pay for it hourly? Lord, that was awful. But it's an advertisement for the DC Comics Online site, which has uh, links to DC, Vertigo, Milestone, Paradox, and Mad Comics that you could access for 10 hours and then get charged out the wazoo for anything over. The DC subscription page has uh, save 3 or save $4 on subscriptions for the uh, comics, and it says start the new year off right, subscribe now. And it's got images of uh, a lot of the new characters. Well, it's got the longer-haired Superman it's got Wonder Woman, Batman, the new Tim Drake Robin. Uh, it's got the Flash, the Wally West Flash, uh, the Mike Waringo one, I think. And it's got, finally, Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern on there. So they've added Kyle Rayner to the uh, roster on the uh, pages because he was selling pretty well at the time. The DC Universe page also pimps the uh, DC Online site, and it gives you some... Uh, some things that we probably know a lot about now. It gives you the uh, sort of cyber symbols, which are the uh, sideways smiley faces and stuff. Plus, it also gives a cyber shorthand with uh, such wonderful sayings as LOL, Rotuf LOL, uh, JJ, which is just joking, BR Bay, IMHO, and CYA. Uh, before a time when we used to communicate with actual words rather than letters. I miss that time. But that does it for this time. I'm going to mention that like most times, this time out, neither the Green Lantern book nor the Guy Gardner book have been compiled in any way, shape, or form. If you want to read them, gotta hit your LCS. Sadly. But I definitely recommend doing it. And I definitely recommend you coming back next week where we find out just what the heck's in Guy's refrigerator, we get to see a cameo of Kyle and Guy's book, and Kyle gets, well, friendly with a member of the Teen Titans. And by friendly, I don't mean horizontal naked friendly, I actually mean friendly. Because unlike Hal Jordan, 
Kyle's not the horniest man on the planet. He's just the luckiest man. But that's it for the show. Thank you all for listening, and please come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Teen Titans Go! the Japanese version from the band Puffy Amiyumi. Yeah, you probably can't find this except on import CDs. So, rather than have you not go to Amazon.com at all, I suggest you go to 2TrueFreaks.Lipson.com and go through the Amazon link there to go to Amazon to pick up the Hi Hi Puffy Amiyumi TV show on DVD. You can also pick up episodes of the Teen Titans DVD, or you could just buy whatever you want because Amazon's a great marketplace for finding pretty much anything that any person listening to this podcast would need. And if you go to Amazon.com, please make sure that you go through the 2 True Freaks link at 2TrueFreaks.Lipson.com. And then when you purchase something from Amazon, a small amount of money goes back to the 2 True Freaks site. It's not extra money that you have to pay, it's all incorporated into your purchase price. So if you ever feel the need to buy something from Amazon, make sure you go first to two true freaks.